1: Hello there, welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host Peng Fei Zhao speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today I will be talking with Xue Li Wang on her new book, On My Own, The Challenge and Promise of Building Equitable STEM Transfer Pathways. The lack of talented STEM workers has been a national concern in the United States for decades. A lot of the discussions about this issue focus on from kindergarten to the 12th grade, undergraduate or graduate education. Whereas Li takes us to a much less examined road to look at the transferring pathways from community colleges to four-year universities. In today's interview, you will hear us talk about the educational opportunities that the transfer pathways offer to an entire generation of American youth, and especially those coming from disadvantaged family backgrounds. We will also discuss how these opportunities have been to some degree compromised due to various reasons, and what are some of the things that colleges, universities, communities, and the whole society could do to better support these aspirational students. Now let's turn to Xie Li, the author of On My Own, The Challenge and Promise of Building Equitable STEM Transfer Pathways. Hello Xie Li, Um, thanks for joining
0: us today. Welcome. Hi, thank you Pengfei for the warm welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh,
1: And also, congratulations on publishing this wonderful book, it's really amazing. Thank you. Uh, So can you first please introduce yourself to our audience?
0: Yes, sure. So a little about me, um, I'm a professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis within the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I teach graduate courses involving topics on community colleges, assessment in higher education, and mixed methods research in education. As a researcher, I study college students' learning, their experiences, their pathways, and success, with a particular focus on community colleges and STEM education. Ultimately, I hope that my scholarly agenda advances our unique and insightful understanding of issues of equity along students' pathways to success. And then in that light, I have collaborated uh, with a number of remarkable community and technical colleges on these issues through my National Science Foundation-funded projects. Um, So that's a brief overview of me and some of my work.
1: Wonderful. Um, Do you want to say a little bit more about how you came to this point of studying this specific, in this specific area, uh, like some of the personal stories that has been, uh, have been milestones for you to uh, study here or do this research?
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. speaking of my longstanding interest in transfer and then in the present time, more specifically on transfer pathways in STEM areas of study, and I had to go back to my time, at Ohio State University when I was a graduate student. So I arrived at the larger topic on community college transfer during my time as a doctoral student at Ohio State University, studying in the higher education program there. My interest then was mostly driven by seeing the success of post-transfer students through both the literature I engaged with and many personal encounters with highly successful, kind, and savvy transfer students attending Ohio State University. So that is, I've seen that if community college students make it to the point of transfer, they're as likely to succeed and get their bachelor's degree as students who start out directly at four-year institutions. So on a personal level, this seems really heartening and uplifting Uh, allowing me to see the democratizing function in transfer through the community college pathway as something quite uniquely American. And then on the other hand, the reality is that far too many students beginning at community colleges wanting to transfer don't actually make it to the transfer. So the numbers have been pretty consistent on this, only around a quarter of students who want to transfer, eventually transfer within six years. So many of them don't even get to be a part of this post-transfer success story that I've witnessed both as a researcher as, as an individual. So thinking about my interest um, as for some transfer pathways in particular, I was first exposed to the narrative that there was a shortage of STEM workforce talent also back then around 2008 when completing my dissertation research on community college transfer student success. So the ways in which two-year colleges were portrayed in the STEM shortage policy narrative was super fascinating but also bothersome because upward transfer as a significant role of two-year colleges was almost invisible in those narratives. All of this really troubled me because if we think about transfer as one of the most democratizing functions in higher education in the United States, and then when we talk about STEM talent at the baccalaureate level, we don't even think about community college transfer as part of the equation. So, building equitable transfer pathways in STEM and other areas was not only a growing issue of national concern, but has since been at the heart and soul of my research over the past decade.
1: Well, that's that sounds like a very fascinating. What I've heard is about this democratizing function of uh, STEM pathways, like STEM transfer pathways, and how like this dream of chasing uh, democratization of the higher education uh, to equalizing the um, higher education has have been motivated you uh, in your pursuit of your career. So I wonder if you could, you know, we have talked a lot, of, you have to talk a lot about the uh, transferring experience and the successful stories. I wonder if you could um, um, kind of um, back backward, like trying to uh, trying to piggyback a little bit, is to say like if you could uh, say a little bit more about the overarching the general picture of STEM talent shortage in the United States, because I know like this is a growing uh, national concern. But I hope uh, I hope that we could give our audience a broader picture of what's going on there. And also, you mentioned, you know, in the policy discourse, there is a lack of uh, presence of the STEM community, like the STEM transferring pathways. So maybe um, just you're trying to give um, our audience a more general picture. So would you like to say more
0: about that? Yeah, absolutely. And you are absolutely right uh, in saying that uh, the STEM shortage issue has been um, gaining a lot of attention at the national level. And in a sense, there has been a lot of investment in resolving the STEM talent shortage issue. Um, However, I think my problem was um, community and technical colleges um, have had their share of attention when it comes to this issue. But the truth of the matter is that at least the initial focus on these institutions in resolving STEM uh, uh, shortage. At the time, when I was a student, this was about 10 years ago, at the time, the initial focus on these institutions was still um, primarily um, at the uh, workforce preparation level in terms of the so-called sub-baccalaureate degrees and the so-called mid-skilled jobs, implying that students would stop before they ever transferred to earn a bachelor's degree. So even though there were urgent calls to increase the number of students getting bachelor's and graduate degrees in STEM, two-year colleges weren't even part of that conversation. And in that light, if we limit STEM education at the community college to job preparation only at the, baccalaureate, uh, at the sub-baccalaureate level only, this leaves out a huge group of talented and motivated students who could transfer in STEM. And this is essentially blocking any potential of upward mobility in terms of their STEM education and career. Plus, the irony is that there have been repeated calls for enriching the diversity of STEM bachelor's degree talent, considering that community colleges enroll more students of color, women, students from low-income families and first-generation students, and so on, compared to four-year institutions. These two-year community and technical colleges need to be a very intentional part of the solution. And another important thing to point out is that while there have been uh, resources pouring into the STEM workforce shortage issue, this picture is much more complicated for community colleges. In reality, these resources are unequally allocated across higher education, leaving two-year institutions often at a disadvantage in fulfilling their role as an equitable transfer pathway. So these institutions have been consistently under-resourced and underfunded. So even though there are amazingly motivated and resilient students in STEM starting at community colleges who intend to transfer, they may end up with limited institutional support and encounter other challenges largely owing to the under-resourced nature of community colleges so all these issues they really compound to negatively affect the potential of um, equitable stem transfer pathways and these issues must be resolved in order to build more equitable stem transfer pathways
1: well wonderful thank you so much for your uh, very detailed and comprehensive explanation now i think you know after reading the book i feel like i have a understanding, a good understanding of why this is in, important, but after talking with you, after asking these questions, I feel like I have an even better understanding on this, and this is indeed something matters a lot for students, for families, and for, you know, um, the continuous prosperity of this country, and yes, yeah, so it's very meaningful. Then, uh, What do you hope to achieve in this book?
0: Well, um, um, Pogwe, as you might have remembered, this book um, is a culminating product of a longitudinal study uh, that I initiated that closely follows STEM transfer aspiring students' journeys on the ground. So with that, my book aims to demonstrate that STEM transfer is by no means a simple or straightforward process. Instead, it is deeply complex and nuanced as students attempt to hold fast to their high aspirations and strong perseverance, and along with their own agency, despite the many obstacles they encountered. And this process is further complicated by disparities and inequities that permeate students' paths toward or away from transfer especially uh, when we think about students of color, women, students with mental health issues or learning disabilities, first-generation students, and those from low-income backgrounds. These students often face the largest hurdles. So so I really want to um, highlight uh, the disparities. Uh, They're not the deficits in the students, but disparities created by the system. At the same time, I also argue that the challenges and barriers um, should not be up to the individual students to resolve. They really, as I mentioned, reflect the inequitable transfer mechanisms in STEM systematically in place and in need of disruption. So in the end, I really hope uh, to explicitly name these mechanisms so we can move toward disrupting them. I outlined all these um, areas in need of disruption in my book. Also, um, it is important to mention that uh, in light of what I aim to achieve with this book, I hope to get both community colleges and four-year institutions in the same room, engaging with each other as equal, active, and proactive partners in supporting transfer students writ large. As my book has uh, shown, hopefully, transfer students continue to be deeply impacted by both ends of the process of transfer and articulation. And the reality is that transfer is not a community college concern alone. It takes the entire post-secondary sector to pave the transfer process for students. Um, as a whole, I hope uh, my book will be an informative read for researchers, practitioners, and policymakers. And I hope it offers a holistic and critical approach to break down STEM transfer barriers, along with some actionable steps to do so. Although I laid out a wide range of specific recommendations based on my research findings, None of them are really possible without an equity-centered mind shift and purposeful reflection, which I uh, um, discussed in detail during my final chapter. So this kind of reflexivity means instructors and practitioners hold themselves and their institutions responsible for enacting practices, policies, and structures that address uh, persistent inequities bringing us all closer to achieving more equitable STEM transfer. You so sounds- that ultimately summarizes um, what I was hoping to achieve, and I hope I did to some extent.
1: <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very comprehensive project, and you're speaking to multiple audiences, and you have these very great aspirations to you address these complex issues from multiple dimensions. And yeah, I I I look forward to hearing uh, more details and more of the insightful findings from the book. And with that said, I wonder if we could also say a little bit more about the back of the stage story about the book. Say, you know, one thing that I really appreciate a lot about the book is that you present us a long-term in solid and complex study in a very engaging and straightforward way. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about this project behind the book?
0: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate your compliments, Pengfei. So uh, this longitudinal mixed methods study um, is really um, the whole body of research underlying this book. The project followed a cohort of um, 1,670 students beginning in STEM programs and courses at three large two-year institutions in the Midwestern state in fall 2014. Uh, And we followed uh, the students attending these institutions and onward until fall 2018. During those four years, I worked with my incredible research team to collect data from these students through multiple waves of surveys, in-person interviews, and college transcripts to follow their educational and life journeys as they move either toward or away from the prospect of transfer to a four-year institution. We, uh, more specifically, we administered surveys during three points in time to learn about uh, students' college and life journeys, if they transferred, and what the process was like if they indeed transferred, or the reasons why they didn't transfer. We also collected survey data on other potential scenarios if they didn't transfer in terms of their workforce participation, uh, life obligations, and context and then all their associated experiences along the way. And then in addition to the survey data, we followed up with uh, three rounds of interviews with a uh, a smaller number of students uh, who participated in the survey to learn more deeply about their experiences in ways uh, that survey research wouldn't necessarily allow us to do so and uh, on top of the in-person interviews and then the survey data we also used uh, students college transcripts to help us track their educational journeys and pathways including transfer and uh, eventual credential uh, completion and such so all together these sources of data help us construct a fuller. Uh, STEM transfer process and to arrive at the kinds of conclusions and implications that I drew through the book.
1: Well, thanks for sharing. Now looking back, what are some of the challenges of completing this project? It sounds like a super complex and also it's a long-term project.
0: Yeah, great question. (laughs) I I wouldn't lie, there were a lot of um, challenges and all good and motivating challenges, of course. And and I will say, though, the overall good challenge is to achieve the delicate balance of a rigorous, complex and authentic study and the amount of careful work and thinking that goes towards that. So as an example, it is really challenging to capture the fluidity and messiness of students' educational intent their academic pathways, especially in light of the many missions and functions of community colleges. So in order to uh, kind of harness this kind of challenge a little bit, I included all students who were enrolled in STEM programs and courses as first time students at the three institutions and asked about their educational intent multiple times in multiple ways through the surveys and the in-person interviews. So for instance, this approach allowed us to account for and potentially tease out the inherent messiness I just talked about around intent to transfer and then transfer in STEM in particular. Um, So my team and I were able, uh, through collecting data this way, we were able to analyze these multiple measures of their intent to determine if our findings were actually sensitive to different ways of asking about their educational intent. This also helped us demonstrate how fluid and evolving educational intent can be for students, along with the underlying reasons behind it. Um, Then in addition, including all students with initial exposure to uh, STEM programs or courses naturally also resulted in a fair concentration on STEM and potential transfer in STEM areas of study. But at the same time, this approach uh, made the study more broadly relevant to transfer in general. So although uh, we included uh, this large group of students um, in in the sense that we were, to begin with, we can say that all students were definitely uh, intending to transfer and intending to transfer in STEM. This approach did help us capture their fluid intent within and outside of STEM. So in this sense, this approach made the findings and implications of the study more applicable to not only transfer in STEM but transfer in general. So I will say these kinds of challenges, using the example that I shared, um, inspired me and my team uh, to be very careful with the ways we collected our data and the kinds of the data we collected, and also the multiple ways in which we um, approached our data analysis in honest, imperfect, um, but careful ways.
1: By educational intent, do you mean the intent to transfer or not, or like the intent in a broader sense?
0: Right, and I would say both. Uh, Of course, with the study uh, having a specific focus on transfer, uh, asking directly about students' intent pertaining to transfer specifically is important, but also is part of the larger picture of their aspirations toward other potential types of educational attainment, and along with their life goals and such. So we do have very specific survey items asking about intent to transfer, but we also introduce the broader picture mirroring the wide range of aspirations and intent when it comes to education, career, and life in general.
1: Can you give us some examples?
0: Right. Uh, One example uh, talking about um, the different ways and the good messages around actually just how to ask about intent, right? (laughs) So in our survey items, we just for transfer alone, we ask about transfer intent loosely defined in three different ways. Uh, we ask uh, at this point do you intend to transfer to a four year institution and we followed up with if you do intend to transfer what is the time frame uh, and then another uh, major item is uh, about uh, sort of a more broad life scheme. Um, Uh, For example, do you anticipate uh, completing a bachelor's degree that's kind of encompassing um, transfer as an inherent part of the equation? And then um, a third way uh, to gauge uh, transfer intent is through opening up the survey by asking the primary purpose for students to attend this particular two-year institution. Uh, because then, if they indicate in transfer to a four-year institution as the primary reason for attending, that's another a third way of triangulating our uh, findings around um, transfer intent.
1: So it sounds like you're trying to really grapple with this very fluid and evolving situation about students' intent uh, intention. To transfer, and also, of course, students' activities involved in these transferring pathways. So, so have you anticipated all of this before you conduct the study, or do you need to? Did you need to uh, make any adjustment in the middle of the research?
0: Um, the example or the set of examples that I just gave about. Um, Measuring, accounting for, and harnessing data around educational intent was pretty carefully and well-conceived prior to data collection uh, because as a researcher who has pretty much spent all my time studying transfer, I was fully aware of all this muddiness, the good muddiness around um intent. Um, and then you we have all different other terms to talk about that, right? So right. I was fully aware of these. Uh, so this was the good challenge that I uh, sort of anticipated. And then I, I made sure that me and my team uh, spent quite a bit of time and thinking prior to Uh, developing the research protocols and instruments in terms of our surveys and our interviews. So a large part of this was uh, in our conceptualization, so that was done prior to the project. But during the project, as everything evolved, um, obviously there were ways in which the project was taking on an unexpected um, approach or direction that was not originally in, in my in my plan uh, during the stage of conceptualizing the study. Uh, I'd be happy to share uh, some of those examples if that's of interest.
1: Yeah sure, please go ahead. Yeah. what are some of the things like unexpectedly popped up popped up for example, or what are some of the changes you make that eventually lead to the findings of the study?
0: Right. Yeah. No, that's um I just opened the doors, right?
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I <old> <laughs> Yeah. one will be
0: That's that's a very fair question because although we can all go into a study with the best intentions and plans. Yeah. We all can agree that real authentic research rarely goes as planned. So there are definitely lots of adjustments um, that I made along the way. Um, But in a sense, you know, looking back, they all added to the complexity and honesty of the study. Uh, One example that uh, came to mind uh, was a pretty big picture one uh, in terms of the research design in general. So I initially settled on a sequential quantitative toward qualitative mixed methods uh, design. So sequential in nature, meaning that I started off with uh, a quantitative face as a pretty major face with a lot of weight attached to it. And then linearly followed by uh, qualitative uh, approaches that were meant to uh, support, uh, further explain, and or triangulate findings from the quantitative um, strand. So in this sense, it's sequential, quantitative, qualitative mixed methods design. So this approach typically implied a priority given to the quantitative strand, and that was in my original thinking. However, due to the richness of the qualitative data we collected through the student interviews, I've realized um, it was no longer viable for student interviews and voices to only play a supportive role for the quantitative findings, but instead they deserved their full and undivided attention in our analysis in many cases. So I think this issue uh, mirrors the highly iterative and interactive nature of this evolving mixed methods design and actually mixed methods design in general. So the priority given to the quantitative or qualitative strengths shifted over the course of my project. And in some cases, qualitative approaches, in fact, drove our subsequent efforts in analyzing and interpreting our quantitative findings. And in, in, in one case, um, qualitative analyses drove the design of our follow-up surveys by adding some additional survey items that were not originally in the picture. And then in some other cases, our quantitative approaches, um, uh, of course, largely guided our survey data analysis and findings at the same time, they would unravel some unique topics and directions very much suited for in-depth qualitative analyses that were not originally part of the, the qualitative component of our mixed methods design. So I think wrestling with um, being both uh, largely uh, faithful to the larger topic that I enter this project with, while understanding there's a highly emergent and fluid nature to the research design um, as an evolving tool that actually serves the larger topic and being okay with the changes and adjustments made along the process in order to fully and honestly answer the large question, uh, that was a very good uh, journey for me uh, to travel and to to wrestle with. And finally, I think I came to terms uh, with the fact that uh, changing our research um, uh, techniques, uh, procedures, and processes do not necessarily take away from Um, the larger topic that didn't change. And in a sense, it's really uh, a reflection of um, honest adjustments. And um, so I I learned to not to view that as a departure from where my heart was pointing toward.
1: Exactly. And as you know, I'm a qualitative (laughs) methodologist, so I really applaud that the sensitivity you showed in the process of collecting and analyzing data about you know, the qualitative data. So yeah, it's very interesting to hear the story. And I, I actually indeed noticed this when I was reading the book. I, I think it was very interesting um, to notice like how you um, pay attention to both trends and how you try to wrestle with both. And it's really good to know. And with that, I can't wait to enter into our discussion about the findings. Um, You know, um, in terms of the findings, uh, the general question will be, will STEM transfer pathways help us in solving the problem of the shortage of STEM uh, talents? Uh, What are some of the general takeaways uh, from the research? I think we touched upon this a little bit, but it it would be great if we could talk a little bit more.
0: Sure, absolutely. And that's such a great question. And as you probably have guessed, the answer is definitely not a binary yes, no (laughs) answer to that question. And I think to answer this question fully, I uh, need to unpack what I found a bit more. So um, I talk about the longitudinal design and then following students over the course of four years. Four years later, the students fell under four trajectories, which I call momentum trajectories that I constructed um, based on the data. So only 40% of the students landed on the linear upward uh, trajectory, meaning that they transferred to a four-year institution. And more alarmingly, about the same number and percentage of the students ended up on the taking a break trajectory Having left their two year institution without transferring and without receiving any credential from their original two year institution
1: wow, so they, they um I don't know if drop out is a good word to use, but it sounds like they they drop out from their community college or like their ins- original institutions
0: um, in, a, in a sense, yes, and um, so they were you no know, as of um the close of the study four years later our um, transcript records and then uh, coupled by the survey data these students had no records in terms of ever transferring or they have no records uh, indicating they've ever received a post-secondary credential. I see. So then and then the third uh, trajectory um, I found that 13 percent of the students were on the detoured trajectory which means The students had to piece together multiple institutional attendance or programs in order to transfer upward and oftentimes after recognizing that their initial institutional program was not a good fit. And then the final trajectory was called deferred with 9% of the students on that one those students were initially determined to transfer, but had to let go of transfer to pursue a more short-term credential to make immediate returns to their education. So if we look at transfer as a simplistic measure of um, success, um, then these trajectories would suggest that not all students, quote unquote, succeeded. However, it is also important to point out that the students across all these four trajectories were remarkably, uh, were remarkably motivated and resilient. They often held on to their high aspirations, strong sense of agency and perseverance, which are sometimes also a very complex manifestation of their preexisting tendencies of self-reliance and hesitance in seeking help. And this is especially true among many students of color and first-generation students. So this is the uh, internal facet of uh, on my own as embodied in my book title. And that represents that the the internal side of the key finding um, around on my own. But there is an external level or facet to on my own. Although students described um, positive experiences with individual advisors and instructors overall, they also at the same time ended up with limited intentional on point institutional support that actually translated into a clear path toward uh, transfer. So there were numerous external structural barriers and challenges on the part of both transfer sending and transfer receiving institutions alike. So these are some of these barriers and challenges included a lack of clear articulation in courses that applied to specific STEM majors. And there's a lack of clear course pathways that fit students' scheduling needs, especially in light of their life, work, family, and other uh, obligations and responsibilities. And then a major, major barrier is uh, the lack of financial support for transfer students. So altogether, my book uh, reviews that these students were really pushing through these external side of my own these friction points. Eventually, um, they just kept pushing, but driven for the most part by their own internal my own, which was their motivational momentum. This is really a testament of the remarkable talent these students are. But at the same time, we have to think about to fully realize the STEM transfer promise, the external on my own that I just described must be disrupted so that the internal on my own can become an asset if student needed it instead of these students' sole and only lifeline. So although, um, back to your question, although STEM uh, transfer pathways have potential to resolve um, the so-called shortage uh, in STEM talent, my findings really reveal there's a lot of work uh, that remains to be done.
1: That's very, I mean, it's fascinating to hear that you have uh, sorted out so carefully all the different contributing factors that may play the role of roadblocks, for example, for these students to transfer to a four-year college, and and but on the other hand, it also really makes us m- make us to make us realize how um, important it is for you know the higher ed sector, for example, to work harder to support these students, um, as talented as they are, as motivated as they are, with the good support they uh, they. They will have a better chance to um, chase their dreams. Well, with that, I, I really want to follow up um, with some with a question about the stories because the stories you shared in this book uh, it's a, a super powerful and super helpful in demonstrating this um, idea of on my own. And so I wonder uh, Shirley, uh, would you like to share some of the stories
0: um, here? Yeah, I'd be very happy to. I was hugely privileged to get to study and learn from um, many, many uh, transfer aspiring students through my study underlying this book. And so I want to take a moment to share um, maybe hopefully four brief stories of four remarkable individuals, each of them representing one of the four trajectories I just talked about, So, um, first we have Katie, uh, who was on the taking a break trajectory. Katie identified as a white woman, and she was a first generation student and a single mom of two. She was attending part time with a goal to transfer into a science field one day. So, her very first course was a general chemistry class, which Katie described as overwhelming. There was a lot of memorizing. And Katie was not good at that. To make things worse due to her attention deficit disorder, she was in over her head with the lab with all the noises, movements and chemicals and such. And so Katie tried to discuss her struggles with the instructor once. And Katie described her instructor as kind and accommodating. But this conversation didn't actually go anywhere. The instructor reassured Katie saying, I feel like you're doing fine. Like, I don't feel concerned about your progress. I think you're doing okay. Katie never completed that chemistry class. Her leaving that conversation, still thinking the word of her instructor, but feeling like she would have to resolve all her own problems really led to nowhere. Her flunking out of the class set in motion numerous failed attempts at possible academic paths over the next four years. And Katie was no longer enrolled at the college. She did not transfer nor did she leave with any credentials. When I asked Katie to reflect on her time at the college, she said, I have very much this sort of mentality, like I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to bootstrap. Do it the American way, all of that baloney. And now, as I'm reaching these precipices and making decisions about my future, I'm thinking, I can't make this decision on my own. I need more information. And next we have Shamus, who was on the detoured trajectory. She identified as a multi I wonder Shelly, I
1: wonder if we could uh, just take. Like a short, a short moment of um, break before we enter into this uh, next story to really ponder over Katie's Mm -hmm. story because it has been so powerful to demonstrate the meaning of like on my own, and I feel like oh, well, what could have been done to support her? Like I feel like I need to ruminate on it a little bit more. As if it sounds like um, she had a bright dream of you know supporting her family, like developing her career. But what would have been done to real help her realize the dream? Like you mentioned this class and why this class is so important was so important and set up the motion for her to you know divert from this. Halfway.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I unpacked uh, Katie's uh, story along with the story of uh, many others throughout the book. And I think Katie's example illustrates several things. Uh, one is this um, pre-existing uh, tendencies, especially among many first-generation students who um, who were very motivated, who were very self-dependent, and assuming that, um, you know, they seeking help um, and fully articulating their needs and their struggles uh, was not part of the, the picture. So, like, for instance, Katie never really had anything negative to say about her instructor and her other experiences, advisors, instructors at the college she was attending, uh, not even in the quote I just shared uh, with you, uh, she was really still describing the instructor as kind and ac- uh, accommodating. And I agree with her in terms of, uh, so, so I was talking about her um, uh, tendencies um, as a first generation student. And of course, you know, suggesting uh, some more reflective and uh, intentional Uh, thinking and actions and practices toward better reaching out to and supporting first-generation students uh, to be critically important and missing this case. But also I want to uh, mention another element about Katie's story, uh, that is what true accommodation uh, really means. And I agree with Katie that the instructor was kind, meaning, well-intended. I didn't necessarily agree with the accommodating part because out of his haste to um, hopefully support his student, in this case, Katie, the instructor actually well-intendedly dismissed Katie's opportunity to fully articulate her needs for support. Had the instructor waited to hear out more what Katie had to say, Katie's course might be taking a totally different turn. And we never knew, we never can just go back and rewrite Katie's story. But I kept wondering, what if, what if he waited out, he waited one more minute or more uh, to hear the complete story um, and the scenario um, from Katie, so so I think uh, this other larger issue that I mentioned is really on the instructors and on institutional actors. Frankly, you know, advisors, instructors, and sometimes out of our well-intended um, uh, ways to support uh, the students, we actually shut the opportunities to to fully get to understand the full person and we were having a hard time to reflectively balance um, challenge and support and reassurance. And so this obviously uh, pertains to supporting students like Katie, who is first generation, who struggles with uh, learning disabilities and some mental health issues she also reviewed. But this also translates into other minoritized groups of students, uh, whom we work with, but oftentimes with a lot of assumptions that we didn't even know that we had that weren't quite helpful.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, reflecting upon this case, this story with us together. And what you have just said uh, really make me think makes me think about, you know the role of institutional uh, players, or like the instra the institutional actors, for example, like the instructors in this case. And I, I believe like some other, you know, institutional actors, like, I don't know, I mean, like their academic advisors and some of, like other administrators, they could all, you know, it sounds like it's a collective effort and it takes a village to support uh, uh, um, transferring as transfer as varying student. Well, uh, with that, let's uh, move to the next story.
0: Yeah, I was gonna uh, share the story of uh, shemus uh, who was on the detour trajectory. Um, Shamus identified as a multiracial Black woman, and she was in her early 20s when she started in her two-year college's uh, biotech program that prepares students for both jobs and transfer as per their website description of their mission. A few years back, uh, Shamus began college actually as a freshman at the flagship university's College of Engineering, and she was on a competitive scholarship program that was meant to Attract academically talented women and students from groups historically underrepresented in the field of engineering. So, that was the program description of her um, uh, scholarship. So, advising, when uh, Shemus was at the university's School of Engineering, advising was sorely missing during her first year. So, Shemus flunked out of the university and enrolled in her uh, current two year college and hoping to.